Um, I'm going to welcome you to um, it's week nine now of our series called Equipped, where we are looking at um, spiritual disciplines. And, and if you're kind of hopping in cold, we are right in the middle of a section of this series in which for several weeks we are kind of exclusively focusing at the discipline of prayer, um, specifically talking about how prayer can be used to process um, some of the most difficult situations and complex emotions we're going to experience in this life. And there really is no uh, better book in Scripture to teach you how to do that than the book of Psalms, because Psalms, um, at its core, what it is, is it's a, it's a prayer book, it's a collection of prayers, and Psalms will give you, it, it, not only is it a guide to handling literally every feeling or emotion you're going to experience in this life, I mean that literally, um, but, it, but it's a guide that will give you a unique way to handle those feelings and, and those emotions. The reason I say it's unique is because Psalms says to both traditional religious people and more modern secular people that the way you've been handling your emotions and your feelings is wrong. How's that for an intro? Uh, let, me, let me walk through that. <laughs> Got a mini round of applause there. Let me walk through that. Um, Traditional religious people have a tendency uh, to just deny whatever's going on in their own heart. Uh, The reason for that is pretty self-explanatory. If you're going through life and the basis of your relationship with God is your moral efforts and, and sort of the foundation of your identity is, you know, you have this need to be a person that has it all together, which is a hallmark of kind of traditional, you know, religious people think Pharisees then you're, basically you're going to be psychologically unable to face all the brokenness in your own heart, all those kind of dark, intense, turbulent emotions, specifically when you're feeling and thinking things that you know are not right, like bitterness toward people or even anger at God. Uh, religious people have a tendency to not be able to face that, and so they just deny their feelings. But more modern, secular people um, go exactly the opposite way. With, with modern secular people, there's this tendency to see the, the, the exploration and the expression of your emotions and your feelings as the ultimate good in life. And so, you know, in case you were unaware, you and I are, are, are living in a, in a modern secular culture uh, that literally indoctrinates us with this idea for those of us that are, that are raising kids, it's, it's going to indoctrinate our kids with this idea, at least it's going to try, that the, the most important thing you can do in this life is look inside of your own heart. And whatever you find in there, whatever thoughts, whatever feelings, whatever opinions, whatever desires, whatever impulses you have in there, uh, modern secular culture says that's who you really are. Uh, so, so that should be the basis for your identity, and you should pursue the fulfillment of those feelings and emotions and all that um, with the rest of your life because you stand no chance of being happy if you don't do that. Um, and so what, what modern secular people have a tendency to do instead of deny their feelings is they have a tendency to deify them and make them the foundation of their whole life. And Psalms, basically the underlying message of, of Psalms is you're both wrong. Because Psalms is, is um, it's undergirded by this subtle message, you know, Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. And the message is that you and I are completely incapable of handling what's going on in our own hearts by ourselves. 
completely incapable of it. And so whether you, you try to deny it and just pretend that it's not really there, or whether you try to deify it and try to make that the foundation of your whole life, Psalms says you're, you're in a whole lot of trouble if you go either way. And so what Psalms challenges us to do uh, is to pray our feelings and our emotions. And when I say that, I don't mean pray about them. I don't mean like dial into God's hotline and say I'm feeling kind of sad today. It's, it's more than that. When you talk about praying what's going on in your own heart, it means to bring what's happening inside of your own heart into the presence of God in a reflective way through the discipline of prayer so that he can make sense of it in a way that's safe for our hearts to handle. And if that sounds complex, it's because no one is naturally good at that. Nobody is born knowing how to do that. But thankfully, the book of Psalms can show you and I how to do that. And that's really what this section is all about. So for the last several weeks and for the next several weeks, we've been looking at a particular, particularly strong feeling or emotion and just talking about how to process that through the discipline of prayer. So we've talked about helplessness. Uh, Last week, Dave talked about doubt. We're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about sorrow. But today, we're going to talk about processing something that I think is is, uh, super common uh, and super devastating if we try to handle it ourselves. We're going to talk about how to process guilt and shame through the discipline of prayer. To do that, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 130. Let me read through this. It says, out of the depths I call to you, Yahweh. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for Yahweh. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its sins. This is God's word. Now there's only eight verses there, uh, but there's obviously a ton in those eight verses. And there's three particular things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. First off, we're, we're given, um, we're given this, this uh, metaphor of, of guilt to this sort of like this hole that you, you, can, you can sink down into. That's the first thing you see there. Uh, then what Psalm 130 offers us is, is a rope that's available to people who have fallen into that sinkhole. And then lastly, it gives us something really important to understand about the climb out of that sinkhole. And that's what I want to kind of focus us on uh, during our time together. So first and foremost, I want, I want you to see this, this really vivid image here that has to do with sinking and standing. Let me just read the first three verses of this psalm again. It says, Out of the depths I call to you, Yahweh, Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? So first off, when the psalmist is talking about sinking in the depths here, obviously he's not speaking literally. He did not write this psalm in an actual hole. He's speaking psychologically about how he feels. And what he's saying in layman's terms is basically, I feel like I've fallen into this bottomless pit 
that I can't get out of. There's nothing to grab onto. The harder I struggle, the faster I sink. I'm up to my neck and I'm going to die if somebody doesn't get me out of here. It's an incredibly vivid image. Uh, It's something that maybe some of us can relate to in our past. Maybe it's something uh, that, that some of us would say we're going through literally this morning. The question is, what is the psalmist sinking in here? And the clear answer is, he's sinking in his own guilt and shame. He's sinking under the weight of his own moral failure. And the reason we know that is because right after this this really vivid imagery of sinking in this pit, he says in verse 3, Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? In other words, to paraphrase that, he's saying, I can't even stand up under the weight of my own sins. So what we're offered here in Psalm 130 is, is an individual, we don't know who it is, it's an individual who was absolutely, he had his soul crushed and his heart broken under the weight of his own moral failure. Now before I, before I go even an inch further with this, let, let me, let me uh, bring up what I feel is, is, is probably the most important question to deal with, which is, is this even relevant anymore? This idea of guilt, this idea of shame, um, if you start talking about guilt, specifically, you know, out, outside the four walls of the church and with people who were not raised in the church, uh, something that, that you'll hear pretty often is this idea that, you know, in, in traditional societies that imposed traditional standards of morality on people, you know, there tended to be... Um, it tended to create people that walked around with a sense of guilt, but, you know, times have changed, and that's accurate. I mean, we live in a culture now that more and more is kind of pressing you with this idea that you get to decide what is right and wrong for yourself, and you should not let anybody impose their standard of morality on you, i.e., you should never feel guilty at all, and uh, that's, that's happened. You know, I've, I've, I've talked to you about this before. Um, but back in the fire department, I was talking to somebody who, I, they, somebody asked me, one of my coworkers said, why are you a Christian? And I said, well, G, you know, Jesus, this is exactly what I told him. I said, Jesus takes away my guilt and shame. And I thought for sure he would bite on that and say, man, I have so much guilt and shame. Let's talk about this Jesus. Instead, he said, well, I don't really struggle with that, so I guess I don't need Jesus. And I had no idea what to do with that. But that response is really the product of a mindset that's been molded by the modern secular culture that we're in that says you shouldn't have to feel guilty for anything. And so while I think it's, a, I think it's accurate to say that our culture has caused people to not really feel guilty, at least as much as, as maybe they would have a couple of decades ago, um, what, I, what I want you to consider is that what our culture cannot do What no culture has the power to do is to help take away our sense of shame. See, a lot of times when people talk about guilt and shame, uh, we use them interchangeably. um, And the biblical concepts of guilt and shame, they do have some overlap, but there's some really important differences that are really necessary for us to understand when it comes to dealing with guilt and shame. Uh, Somebody who's, who's smarter than I am pointed out that if you look at the biblical concept of guilt, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but the opposite of the biblical concept of guilt is innocence. Makes sense. If you're not guilty, you're innocent. If you're not innocent, you're guilty. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this before, but what is the, what is the opposite of shame? Ever asked yourself that question? Biblically speaking, the opposite of shame is actually what the Bible refers to as glory. So when you talk about guilt and shame, guilt is a very, um, guilt tends to be a very specific thing. Uh, and, and it's largely a thing that is external to you. 
that's where guilt and shame are worlds apart. Shame, instead of being specific, tends to be a very general, vague thing. And instead of being an external thing, it, it usually tends to be more of an, of a, an internal thing. What I mean is with guilt, um, it's all about the, 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 the rule that you broke. You know, I, I broke this rule, I did something wrong. Uh, shame is something different. You know that you're operating under the weight of shame um, because it's not so much I feel bad about what I did. Shame says I feel bad about what I am. So if, if guilt is sort of focused on the rule that I failed to keep, shame is focused on the person that I failed to become. And I, I wanted to walk you through that just to make the point that in a culture like ours, that, that for really the last several decades has tried to take away this idea that there is any objective morality that we're all subject to, and you know truth is relative, and you just got to decide for yourself. In a culture like ours that, that may, has, uh, may have... Um, helped people not feel guilty as much. Um, what, what our culture has not done is it has not helped us get out from under the weight of shame. Because no matter what games we try to play or what we try to tell ourselves, the human heart just can't get away from this nagging suspicion that they, we just haven't measured up. And, and, and to kind of prove this point, I want to quote uh, a theologian you may have heard of before. Her name's Madonna. Here's what she had to say. <clears throat> I thought you'd like that. Uh, she said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Some people might hear a quote like that and say, well, that's just a really strange person. But actually, Scripture would say, no, that's a really honest person. And what is so kind of remarkable to me about Madonna's words here, you notice what she's not saying. She's not saying, I realize that there's a divine standard that an omnipotent God who, who I will have to stand before and give an account of my life, I realize that I have failed to live up to his perfect standard and I'm therefore guilty in his eyes and in need of forgiveness. She's not saying that because she doesn't subscribe to that worldview, you know, at least in, unless there's been a conversion in her life. What she's saying is no matter what she does, no matter what she believes, she just can't help but, but be driven by this nagging sense that, that she just she's deficient, she's, she's inadequate, she's, she, she has something to prove. And what a quote like this proves is that even in our culture, no matter how much we try to take away the concept that there is objective morality, no matter how much we try to take away the idea that there is an absolute standard, no matter how much we try to say nobody should feel guilty for anything, quotes like this prove that at the end of the day, the human heart can't shake this feeling that it has some deficiency that it needs to make up for. Now, for Madonna, obviously, the way that she was compensating for that, she was looking to her career success in the hope that maybe that would help her deal with that. And, and, and I'm pretty amazed at the self-awareness here. She even said, my struggle will never end. And she's absolutely right that if that's the way you go about that, it will never end. But the truth is, everybody is, is playing a version of that game. Every one of us has something that we're looking to that we hope is going to help us compensate for this deficiency that we sense in our own hearts. Right? For, for, for some people, it's money. 
super common one in our culture. The thought process is, if I can just make enough money and I can afford this you know, certain lavish lifestyle, then maybe I'll feel like I made it. Uh, for, for, for other people, romantic love is a really common one. The thought process is, if I could just find the perfect spouse or if I could just turn the spouse I have into the perfect spouse and get them to love me the way that I really need to be loved, you know, then I'll be happy and then I'll be whole and then I won't have any problems or you know, it's, it's the perfect family. You know, if I could just raise my kids in a way, if they turn out in a way that proves that I really am a good parent and they actually want to spend time with me even when they don't have to and they love me, then maybe then I'll feel you know, like this hole inside me, all that kind of stuff. It, it, it manifests itself a billion different ways in a billion different people's lives. But the point is any... Any observant person, any thoughtful person would have to analyze what's going on in our culture and come to the conclusion that it might manifest itself differently in different people's lives. But at the end of the day, we're all being driven by the same horrible thing that the Bible refers to as shame. And actually, you know, putting this teaching together, I, I, think, it's, I think it's accurate to say that our culture has actually set people up for all of these mental, emotional, existential breakdowns um, in a way that maybe other cultures didn't, because what it's done is, think of it this way, in taking away the idea of an objective standard of morality, all that's really left people with is this vague awareness that I'm, I'm broken, but now I don't even know why I feel the way that I feel. What we have now is a culture of people who are just like Madonna, who know that there's, there's something off with me, but I don't know where that's coming from or what I'm supposed to do about it. And so no wonder there's been this spike, this quantifiable spike in things like anxiety and depression and everything that it leads to. It's because in this stunning, ironic twist, this culture of ours that was supposed to make people stop feeling so guilty all the time has instead made them feel more ashamed and hopeless in their shame than ever. Let's close in prayer. Uh, no, my point in all that is, you know, for, full circle here is, yes, we need Psalm 130. That no matter what a culture tries to say about, you know, you shouldn't have to feel guilty or whatever, there still is a sinkhole of guilt and shame. And people are still falling in it. And, 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 and before I get into what we're supposed to do about it, one last caveat. I realize that not everyone is like me, which was a painful realization for me. to come. No, no, I, I, I'm a firstborn enneagram type one, which means guilt, I'm not a stranger to guilt. I'm not a stranger to feeling like I failed or I could have done better or I'm inadequate or whatever. I've, not everybody's like that. And so there's, there's, there's a bunch of people, there might be 50% of the people listening to this right now, you, you just don't have a tendency to really be driven by guilt or to beat yourself up. I just want to offer to you, you know, because of your temperament or whatever, which I'd trade places with you if I could, spoiler alert, I'm just good for you, but even, even, if, even if that's where you're coming from and you're not, you know, constantly feeling like you don't measure up, there's a really good chance that you are way more driven by shame than you realize. And there's a really good chance that it's doing more damage in your life and in the lives of the people that you love than you realize. And so, all of that to say, what are we supposed to do about it? And what Psalm 130, it, it tells us that. And, and what Psalm 130 does is it shows us, um, you think of it as a rope that's available to people who are in the sinkhole of guilt and shame that we need to grab onto in order to get out. Uh, the rope is a rope that has two strands, and we need, we need to grab onto both of these strands if we're going to make it out of this thing alive. So we're, we're asking the question, how do you deal with guilt and shame? Uh, and, and the two strands of this rope are going to be our next two ideas. So, so number one, first answer to this question, number one, dealing with guilt and shame requires a standard. 
It is, might sound obvious, but it's important. It's uh, verse 3. Psalmist says, Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? All right, uh, different versions will translate this verse actually pretty wildly differently because of the Hebrew words used here. But if you, if you look really carefully, when it says, Lord, if you um, considered sins, that word considered has all kinds of different meanings, but it can mean to keep something, to hold on to something, to guard and protect something. So basically what the psalmist is saying here, he's saying, Lord, if you decided to hold on to the record of my sins and hold that record against me, I don't stand a chance. That's what he's saying. But, but what's really important to understand is what he's definitely not saying. What the psalmist is not saying is that a record of my sins doesn't exist. Actually, his statement implies the fact that he knew full well that a record of his sins existed and that his only hope was that God would not hold it against him. So first and foremost, what I'm driving at here is the first thing the psalmist does and the first thing that you and I have to do is he grabs hold of this idea uh, that there is an objective standard, a divine standard against which he could measure the guilt and the shame that he was feeling. Uh, the reason that this is so necessary to hold on to is because an objective standard of morality that comes from outside of you, that you don't just make up yourself, is, is really the only thing that will help you figure out whether the guilt that you're feeling is valid or invalid, whether it's true or false guilt. This is something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, so I'll just kind of briefly go over this again. Um, when you begin to feel guilt and shame in your life, the first decision you have to make when you begin to come under that weight, and this might be the most important decision because it decides where you go everywhere else, the first decision you've got to make is, is this guilt valid or is it invalid? Am I going to resist this and say, nope, I don't have to feel that way, or am I going to acknowledge this and get introspective and, and look for where I need to confess and repent of sin in my life. Um, because, simple as it may sound, um, not all guilt is true guilt. Um, there's lots of guilt in this life that should be resisted. For instance, here's a really easy one to talk about. How about mom guilt? Instagram has led to more mom guilt than uh, probably any other horrible invention that humans have come up with. And that's the guilt that especially, I feel like young moms get hit with, that you got to you know, take your kids to three parks a day and they got to be perfectly dressed and, you know, be bilingual before they can talk kind of thing or else you're not living up to somebody's standard. That's mom guilt and it's completely, you know, ridiculous. It's false guilt that you shouldn't be feeling. However, with that, there's obviously also true guilt. You know, there are things that people do that are objectively bad that they should feel guilty for regardless of whether they want to feel guilty for it or not. And so the point is, and you're in my life, we're going to experience guilt that should be resisted. We're going to experience guilt that should be acknowledged. The question is, how are you going to decide what to do with the guilt that you feel? And, and the answer is, and it's just kind of like apologetics 101, if you want to think of it that way, what you and I need most foundationally is something that our culture is never going to give us, which is an objective standard for morality. Now, the psalmist knew this. And he knew that he needed to submit himself to God's standard of what is ultimately right and what is ultimately wrong. I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but let me say it again. In our culture today, um, people don't like to hear that. You're not going to win any popularity contest standing on a stage and saying, submit thyself to God's word, O sinners, right? Because this is like, this is, this is a culture that has probably more difficulty than any culture that's come before it submitting to any form of authority, let alone the authority of God's word. But as much as that might feel constraining to us, I just want to offer to you that I think it actually leads to the greatest kind of liberation that there is. 
Because when you submit yourself to God's standard, out of this awareness that God's eyes are the only eyes that matter, that God's record is the only record that matters, that God's opinion is the only opinion that will ultimately matter in your life and you submit to his standard, what that does is it simultaneously frees you from being captive by every other standard. Meaning you're no longer controlled by what other people think of you and, and, and really you're not even controlled by what you think of you anymore, which is a freedom that money can't buy. If you want to see what this looks like, Paul actually models it for us um, which is amazing for a number of reasons, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. I think this is the clearest picture of this in all Scripture. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, It is of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself. I would, side note, I would love to never evaluate myself again. It is exhausting putting myself on trial. Paul got out of that courtroom. He says in verse 4, For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. And then he settles it. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. What Paul is saying there is on the one hand, he's, he's writing to Corinth, and he begins by saying, hey, Corinthian people that I love, I don't care what you think about me. Now that's, that is a kind of freedom to not care about what anybody thinks about you. But it's incomplete freedom. Because if you go through life only not caring what other people think about you, what that will not help you deal with is your own inner sense of shame. So Paul goes a step further there and he says, and by the way, I've even gotten over what I think of me. I just want you to consider for a moment how amazing it is that Paul's the one who's saying this. I was considering this this week. For a guy that was born and raised and lived and died in an age in which social media did not exist, Paul managed to accrue an astonishing number of haters. Paul could go into a city in ancient Rome and thousands of people knew who he was. They've made up their mind about what he was doing and, you know, it would often get him beaten or thrown in jail or, you know, worse. Um, Paul had, you know, the irreligious people of his day saying this guy's ideas are threatening the very fabric of Roman society on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, Paul had, you know, the religious people of his day saying this guy's ideas are threatening the very fabric of Judaism and everything that, that our faith has rested on, you know, for the last several thousands of years. The point is Paul had a lot of people that had a lot of opinions about the life that he was living. And what he's saying here is I am no longer controlled by that. That's an amazing thing. But what's more amazing to me is Paul saying, I don't even judge myself anymore. I don't, even, I don't even let my own conscience beat me up anymore. Because I look at Paul and I see a guy who has, he's got a few good reasons to have difficulty sleeping at night. I, I just want to say, whoever is listening to this right now, struggling with guilt and shame because of things that you've done or people that you've hurt, Paul hurt people worse than you did. This is a guy, before coming to Jesus, Scripture says he was breathing threats and murder against the church. By his own admission before Agrippa, later on in the book of Acts, he admits that he took innocent people's lives before he came to Jesus. This is a guy who had innocent blood on his hands. This is a guy who orphaned children before he came to Jesus. This is a guy who did damage in the lives of other people that no matter how sorry he felt, he could never undo the pain he caused. And yet he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 4, I've learned to live free of that. That's a freedom that a whole lot of people would love to have. 
And the only way that you get there is, Paul says it right here, the psalmist is, is modeling it for us in 130, that kind of freedom requires a submission to God's standard. Because when you submit yourself to God's standard, what you gain in that moment is the ability to hold on to something that not only gives you the ability to discern between true and false guilt in your own life, it gives you something to hold on to that frees you from being controlled not only by what other people think of you, but, but by even, it, it frees you from being beaten up by your own conscience. Conscience. So first and foremost, what you and I need, dealing with guilt and shame, requires a standard. However, while that is one absolutely necessary strand of the rope, it's not enough in and of itself. Because if you look just at what the psalmist says here in, in, in verse 3, he actually says that in and of itself, he says, who could stand? You know, the law, the standard by itself will just show you how much you need a Savior. You, you need something else if you're going to get out of that sinkhole. And that second thing is going to be our second idea today. Number two, <clears throat> dealing with guilt and shame requires a new redeemer. Not just a redeemer, but a new one. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verses 7 and 8. It says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its sins. Now, let me ask a question about these words. When the psalmist says, O Israel, all of Israel, put your hope in the Lord, what's noteworthy is that he was a part of Israel. So he's not just saying, you know, why don't all, all you other people, you know, figure this out. He's speaking to himself as well. So th the question that that leaves us asking is, is why would the psalmist be telling himself and his countrymen to put, we need to put our hope in the Lord. It sort of begs the question, what were they putting their hope in? Uh, here, here's, here's what's happening here. And maybe this is going to hit home for somebody. A lot of times when you're dealing with somebody who is in, if I can call it, the sinkhole of guilt and shame, you know what that is on the basis of this psalm. A lot of times when you're dealing with somebody in that place, uh, you'll hear a certain phrase. It might not sound exactly like this, but it'll probably sound something like this. The phrase is, I just can't forgive myself. I, I know you're telling me God forgives me. I, I get that. That's great. But I just can't forgive myself. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there before. I've been there before. Maybe some people are there right now. That is an incredibly difficult place to be. And it's a confusing place to be. And it feels like a hopeless place to be. But I'm going to tell you what verses 7 and 8 offer us is this amazing resource, not only for understanding how you got into that mess, but how you're going to get out of it. In, specifically in verse 7, What's happening, and remember that Psalm 130 is a prayer. All of these are prayers. That's what this whole section is about, doing this through the discipline of prayer. What's happening is the psalmist, as he's processing all of this through the discipline of prayer, is he's slowly coming to the realization that he has, in fact, put his hope in something other than God. Now, if I can just speak personally for a minute here, I don't know how many times, first off, nothing like the discipline of prayer will, will bring you to this kind of realization. And, and I, I think it might be accurate to say you're not really going to be able to come to this realization apart from the discipline of prayer. I don't know how many times I have been praying through a psalm uh, when I was in the middle of something you know, that had my emotions just all over the place. And I was praying through a psalm. I don't know how many times this has happened in my life. It's like a light bulb came on and in an instant I knew 
in the process of that, that I had allowed someone or something to take the place that only God can occupy in my heart. And the real reason for my turmoil had nothing to do with other people or the situation God was leading me through and everything to do with what was really functionally sitting on the the throne of my own heart. That's exactly what is happening to the psalmist here. He's coming to this, this powerful understanding that he's put his hope in something other than God. Now, when you talk about hope, the biblical concept of hope, I think the easiest way to understand this, your hope is what you're using to deal with your life. That's all hope is. Hope is the thing that you are using to deal with the weight of your own life. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the human heart has been frantically trying to figure out how we're supposed to deal with shame. It was the very first thing we experienced when we walked out on God. You see it in Adam and Eve. They know that they're naked. They feel shame. They run from God. They get fig leaves. They sew them together you know, to, to try to cover themselves. It didn't work. That was their pathetic attempt to do it. And however many years later, we're still trying to figure out the same thing. And, and, and what we all try to do, and this is what the Madonna quote was about earlier, is we all try to deal with this innate sense of shame by looking to something and putting our hope in that thing and telling ourselves, maybe that's how I could deal with it. Maybe that would get me to the place where I don't have to feel this way anymore. Maybe if I could just do that, if I could just get that, if I could just achieve that, if I could just become that, then I wouldn't have to deal with this, with what's going on in my own heart anymore. There's a million different ways that all of us do this. But the most important thing for us to understand is that the human heart is a hope factory. It has no option except to generate hope and put it in something. And so when you find yourself in this hole that's described in Psalm 130, and you're sinking down in that, it's not going to be enough to just plug your ears and close your eyes and say, God loves me over and over again. The first thing you have to understand is that you already have a redeemer. It's just, it just doesn't have the power to redeem you. You already have a hope. It just doesn't have the power to deliver you. So when somebody, go back to that, um, go back to that case study we were talking about a couple minutes ago. When somebody says, I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself, what they're actually revealing, whether or not they realize it, is they're saying, I've chosen a way of life that I thought was going to help me cope with what I know intuitively is wrong with me. I've chosen a redeemer for myself, and I've chosen a hope for myself that was going to take away my shame so that I could finally feel like I wasn't missing something, but what's evidently happened is that thing has failed me or I've failed that thing, and now they're basically beating themselves over the back with their own hope. So the issue there is that their God, their functional God, is not the biblical God. Their functional Redeemer is not the real Redeemer. Their functional hope is not the real hope. And so if if that's where you're at today, if you find yourself where the psalmist found himself in in Psalm 130, you need to realize what the psalmist realized in Psalm 130, which, which is that you have asked something to redeem you that doesn't have the power to be your Redeemer. You've asked something to deal with your shame that doesn't have the power to give you the hope that your heart needs, that we all need. And so step one is we have to get underneath all of those feelings and and really down to the nitty-gritty of asking ourselves, okay, what am I really looking to to make my life worth living? What am I really really resting the weight of my hope on? What am I really looking to to be my functional redeemer? Whatever that thing is, it's not God. And when we get to that, then of course the next thing we have to do is we have to shift. We have to shift from a false redeemer, from a false hope to the true redeemer, who gives us true hope. 
Now, of course, that begs the question, how do you do that? And you actually see a picture of that in, in, in verse 8 here. Verse 8, the psalmist says, uh, which is, consider how amazing of a statement this is, because he didn't have Calvary to look at like we do. In verse 8, the psalmist says, he will redeem Israel from all its sins. Now, that's the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, realizing that one day God was going to come clean up this mess for us. That he wasn't just going to offer us a sacrificial system whereby we could redeem ourselves, that one day God himself would provide the redemption. And of course, the fulfillment of this verse is seen perfectly in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your and my sin. But what what verse 8 is modeling for us is that the only way you and I are going to have our self-images healed, meaning the only way that you and I are ever going to grow in the ability to see ourselves the way that God sees us, that we are on the one hand more sinful than we dared believe, yet at the same time more loved than we dared hope because of Jesus, and the only way we're going to have this this profound fullness of, of both humility and a confident boldness, which is something that only the, the, the Christian uh, source of identity can offer you and I, the only way we're going to grow in developing that is by knowing that this, the God who, whose eyes are the only eyes that matter, the God whose opinion is the only opinion that matters, the God who sees your heart all the way to the bottom is the same, the same God who was willing to sacrifice himself for you because that's how much he loves you and that's how much he values you. And it's as we grow in understanding that and internalizing that, uh, that we transform and we heal and we change and we grow. And so there's, there's two strands to this rope. First, we need a standard that we submit ourselves to. Secondly, we need a new redeemer. Now, I, I want to tell you, I think we could end here. And I don't think the teaching would be useless. I just think it would be incomplete and, and it wouldn't, It wouldn't set us up the way that we need to be set up for in order to do what this psalm is telling us. Because there's a final thing about the process of dealing with guilt and shame that Psalm 130 leaves us with that I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't mention, which is the reason that I wanted to make it our third and our final idea this morning. This is is the last one. Number three, Psalm 130 shows us that dealing with guilt and shame is a process. The verses five and six Say, I wait for Yahweh. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And what those verses are getting across is this idea is that the process of getting out of the sinkhole of guilt and shame and having your self-image restored and healed by God, that process is exactly that. It's a process. And so if if you're here today and you've had an aha moment and you're coming to realize how driven you have been by guilt and by shame and now you know what you need to do in order to change, what Psalm 130 should leave you understanding is this idea is that getting out of that and developing a self-image healed by God, is it's a process. And it's a process in which You know, there's days when you feel like you leap forward and then there's days you feel like you fall on your face and it's a three steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward kind of thing. That's what it is. It's a process and it requires you and I to wait, according to this psalmist, interestingly enough, just like you would wait for the morning. So that's what you have to do. You want to deal with guilt and shame, you need to learn to wait for the Lord just like you wait for the morning. 
So for the 10th time today, let me ask, what does that mean? If I, you imagine if I just left you today, wait for God like, like you wait for the morning. All right, let's close in prayer. You know how frustrating that would be for me if I was in your position? So, so the question is, what does that actually mean? And we are almost done here, so I, I just ask you to lean in at this last part. Back in 2012, um, I went on a family vacation uh, to New Smyrna Beach in Florida. First time I ever went on that vacation, and um, it was a really tumultuous time in my life. Um, I had made the decision to start meeting with a counselor regularly and facing some things in me that um, I just I knew I hadn't faced yet and it was time to start facing. Really painful time in my life, but also a really um, important time in my life without which I'm confident I would not be your pastor, which is a story for another sermon. On that vacation, um, I didn't plan to do this, but I just it, it kind of worked out this way, that every morning... Uh, I decided to get up at 5 a.m. And I would, uh, which is about nobody's idea of a restful vacation, but I decided to do it. And every morning I would get up and I'd put a pot of coffee on and I'd fill up the biggest cup I could and I'd walk out of the room that me and my dad were staying in. <clears throat> and um, I'd walk out onto the beach and I'd, and I'd walk out into the Atlantic Ocean and I would stand in ankle-deep water and I would look out on the horizon and wait for the sun to rise. And it was an incredibly uh, meaningful experience to me. It is something that I try to do every time I go to the beach now. It's harder with four kids, but I still try to do it at least once. Um, So when I read this analogy this week, talking about waiting for God more than a watchman waits for the morning, that really speaks to me because I, I literally know what that's like. I was literally standing in the Atlantic Ocean waiting for the sun to rise. And for the psalmist to specifically liken waiting to God for waiting for the morning, uh, that tells us something incredibly important that we need to understand about what it really means to wait on God. Uh, each morning on that vacation when, I would get my, when my alarm would go off and it was time to get out of bed, every natural instinct I had told me to stay in bed. Every single natural instinct I had. I was tired. This is vacation. You know, I'm supposed to be sleeping in. Um, you know, I don't particularly like sand. You know, that's just not a great feeling. The water was cold. Every instinct I had said, you know, put it in reverse and, and, and call it a day. But I knew, despite what my instincts were telling me, was that it, I had to move myself out there and I had to wait there if I was going to experience the sunrise. Now, in saying that, obviously, I knew there was nothing I could do to make the sun rise. Right? Me getting up in the morning and standing in the ocean did not, the, the, the sunrise did not depend on me being there. I knew I couldn't get the sun to rise, but I did know that there were things that I could do to move myself into a position where I could experience the light and the warmth and the beauty of the sun when and not if it did rise. And I, I do not have a better illustration of what waiting on God means than that. The biblical concept, it's almost a shame that it gets translated with the English word waiting because that is so far from what the biblical concept of waiting for God is like. Waiting on God is not this passive resignation where you just kind of vaguely wish that God's going to show up and clean up your life for you. On the other hand, waiting for God is not employing the correct spiritual techniques in the correct order so as to force him to show up in your life. Waiting on God is about moving yourself into a position so that you can experience his presence when and not if 
he decides to cause his presence to manifest itself in your life. And the primary way that you and I do that, the primary way that we move ourselves into a position so as to be ready to experience the power and the presence of God is by doing exactly what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 130, which is this thing called the discipline of prayer. So how do you wait for God when, when you are, you're, you're discouraged and you're lonely and you're crushed under the weight of your own failures and under the weight of your own life and you're wondering, is the sun ever going to rise? How do you wait for God? According to Psalm 130, what you do is you show up again and again and again in prayer. And there's no shortcuts and there's no cheat codes. It's just the question of, are you willing to wait? And it's wild to me, somebody reached out to me this week, this has happened so many times to me since I've been preaching that I, I, I just don't see it as a coincidence anymore. Somebody reached out to me this week, texted me about this very thing, they've been praying, they've been waiting, and, and they said, it's not working. And I feel like God isn't showing up, and I feel like he's not meeting me, and he's not speaking to me, and he said, I feel like I'm going crazy. And what's happened in his life is he is in this place spiritually where he's out in the ocean. And, and the sky's still dark, and he's painting the horizon, and he hasn't seen anything yet, and he's, and he's waiting, and he's wondering, is the sun ever going to rise? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, maybe there's some people God has brought here right now that are feeling the same thing, wondering the same thing, and if that's you, I want to end speaking to you directly, and I want to offer you the only thing that's worth offering you. His name's Jesus. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. There, there are so many things that are meaningful and so many things that are unique about Jesus, but in the context of a teaching like this, what's so amazing about Jesus is that in Jesus we have a Savior who personally knows what it's like to be crushed under the weight of guilt and shame and to call out under that burden in prayer only to have his prayer go unanswered. I, I wonder, have you ever thought about Jesus that way? To anybody who's dealing with guilt and shame in their life today, I, I need, it's very important for me before we conclude our time here that you understand that Jesus knows what your guilt and your shame feels like personally. What I mean is Jesus on the cross did not experience a general kind of guilt and shame in this abstract way. He went to the cross with your specific burden. If you know what it's like to be crushed under the weight of your own failures, Jesus himself knows what it's like to be crushed under that weight personally. And not only to experience the weight of that, Jesus Christ called out on the cross under the weight of your failures and my failures only to have his prayer go unanswered because scripture says he was forsaken in that moment. What that means is that in Jesus, you have a Savior who literally knows something no one else will ever know about you, which is exactly what you're going through. That's what Jesus knows. He is the only one who can totally walk with you through that. And so I don't know why God is allowing you to experience what he's allowing you to experience in your life. And I wouldn't trust anybody who says they do know why God is allowing that. But I'll tell you this. Even if I don't know the reason for why you're going through what you're going through, I know what the reason is not. The cross shows me what the reason is not. It can't possibly be that God doesn't love you because Jesus is the tangible evidence that he does. But what we know today that this psalmist would have given anything to know in Psalm 130 is that three days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ came his resurrection. 
And what that means for us right here and right now on this side of Calvary is that whatever you are experiencing right now, no matter how dark the sky seems, no matter how you feel, your guilt and your shame will never have the final say in your life because it did not have the final say in Jesus' life. It cannot have the conclusive word for you because it didn't have the conclusive word for Jesus. That's the hope that the gospel gives us. That's where we find the power to wait on God even when we haven't seen the sun rise yet. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises you that you will get up out of your guilt and shame because Jesus got out of that tomb. And and what's the application for today? Believe that. And if you already do, believe it even more because that's how you deal with guilt and shame. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you that in Jesus we have a Savior that knows exactly what we're going through, that we have a Savior that was willing to be our substitute, a high priest who can sympathize with each and every one of our needs. And I have no idea what the people that you brought here this morning are are carrying around, but I do know that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to carry that unique burden around and to carry it to the cross and to deal with it once and for all. God, would would you cause there to be a freedom in, in this community because of our awareness that Jesus Christ has dealt with everything that would have separated us from you. Everything that could generate guilt, that could generate shame in our life, all of it's been paid for by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Would you help us to live that out as people who are as free as your word promises we are, by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.